Please welcome. Welcome to another episode of Unmet Need, hosted by serial founder, CEO, Jeff Smith. Your number one podcast for healthcare innovation. Jeff and his guests tackle the biggest problems in healthcare and share their experience building successful businesses in medical device, diagnostics, therapeutics, digital health, and so much more. This is Unmet Need, hosted by Jeff Smith. Hello and welcome to the next episode of Unmet Need. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. Today, our guest is Roxanne Dubois of R. Dubois Consulting, LLC. Roxanne is a clinical and regulatory expert. She started her career with a bachelor's in science in biochemistry at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. She then had a number of regulatory roles at Collagen, RenGen Biologics, where she was the VP of Regulatory, Clinical, and Quality, led regulatory at Cohesion, and we worked together at Kaifon when she was the Director of Regulatory Affairs, but more recently was the Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and Quality at SI Bone, who recently went public. Roxanne is currently focused on her consulting practice, R. Dubois Consulting. Roxanne, thanks for being on the show. All right. Thanks for inviting me. All right, so the first part of the interview, we just want to learn a little bit about you. Your resume speaks for itself and has done a lot. But if we go back and put it in a timeline, where did you grow up and what was your early childhood like? Sure. Well, I was born on the East Coast, but we came out to the Bay Area before I started grade school. My dad worked for IBM. I've been moved. So we came out here and... When I was about 11, we moved to Morgan Hill, just south of San Jose. And that was really a nice place to grow up. It was before social media. So I spent a lot of time playing outside and riding a bike and just having a lot of fun as a kid should do. When I was in sixth grade, we had changed school districts and that was my first year down there. I was invited to join a science program. And so that was really cool. Every few weeks we got to get on a bus and drive up to San Jose State and get on a college campus, which was really, for myself, I thought it was very exciting. And we got to go in a science lab and sit on the cool, tall benches in the laboratories and talk to college students and college professors. And the program had exactly the right outcome. I'm sure they wanted to get us interested in science. And I walked away thinking I either wanted to get into medicine or be a scientist. Later, when I went on to Cal Poly, I started out in biology and I really loved the science classes. I had a professor, uh, Dr. Leland Endress, and he was fabulous. I, I didn't really like inorganic chemistry very much, but he taught the series of organic chemistry and it was so cool. He made it fun and I just really liked it a lot. So I, I started taking more chemistry classes. And so I was taking so many chemistry classes, the inorganic series and the organic chemistry. And then one day I went to register for my next classes and the lady at the counter, she looked at my schedule and she said, oh, sorry, you've got to get out of line and go rejigger this so that you have less chemistry stay in the biology program or you've got to change your major. And I said, what do you mean change my major? And she said, well, you can switch to biochemistry. So I didn't have a cell phone or anything. So I didn't call mom or dad or a counselor. I just said, okay. And on the spot, I changed my major. And that turned out to be really lucky because when I graduated and I went to look for jobs, I actually found a lot more opportunities in biochemistry compared to what I saw available in biology. Why is that? 
I don't know. It just might have been the timing or where I was looking in the Bay Area. I was kind of looking anywhere from up the peninsula, maybe up to Palo Alto. You know, my parents are still living in Morgan Hill, so they're San Jose, Mountain View, Sunnyvale. And I, I wanted to find something driving distance from home for the first six months or year. And I just kept seeing jobs that had chemistry and biochemistry requirements. So I interviewed for a job at College Incorporation, and I started in analytical chemistry. And that was okay. But I quickly found that those test tubes and uh, the science benches and everything that's in a science lab wasn't talking to me. And I felt sort of like it seemed really quiet. And I felt like I, it wasn't kind of the best fit for me personally. So I kind of just stuck with it. And then I recall going to an all-employee meeting and Bruce Ferris, the vice president of research and development, did a presentation and he talked about different things we could do with collagen. And he started putting slides up that showed crooked spines for patients with scoliosis. And he had some ideas about what we could do with collagen blocks. And then that, that's when I had this aha moment, like, wow, there's the patient. That's what I wanted to get more connected to. Earlier, I had volunteered in the summers at hospitals because I thought I'd get into medicine. And so I saw these things coming together, you know, like here I'm working at a biomedical company, a medical device company, and then there's the patient. And that's what prompted me to find my way into regulatory affairs. It's a great background. Thank you for all that. I love what you said. So you're eight or nine years old. And then at 10, there's this great opportunity. Was that a fifth grader? Yep. As a fifth grader, you have this opportunity to go on to campus at San Jose. First, I'm curious, did you already love science, math? Was that something that you naturally gravitated towards? Not that young. I hadn't noticed it yet. You know, I was just in grade school and playing with my friends and doing, you know, just regular studies. But that was a real game changer because all of a sudden it made me look into the future and I felt inspired and curious. That's probably the best word. Very curious about what is all of this about that you're showing me here. And did you have any contacts with your father working at IBM, still one of the most important technology companies in the world at the time, probably maybe the most important tech company in the world? At nine, 10 years old, did you know what your dad did and the importance of IBM? And did that have any influence on your interest in science? Well, I always thought my dad was to this day probably the smartest person I knew. I lost my dad two years ago, but he's always learning. When you first walked in our house, the living room was on the left and there's sort of the couch at the end and he was usually laying on the couch and he'd have a book or Time magazine or something that he was reading. And very often he was actively or just as things came up looking for articles that he thought would be of interest to me and my brother and my sister. And he would circle it. He'd go get a black pen and he'd say, you know, big circle around it. And he'd write Roxanne in all capital letters and leave it on the kitchen table. So he would help identify things. Things. So I don't think I had an outside person, but my dad definitely on the inside feeding me and with ideas and information and trying to grow that curiosity. Yeah, what a wonderful gift. I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah, he's terrific. Do you recall, Roxanne, any articles that he circled with your name? Anyone in particular? Well, definitely, uh, you know, it's hard to remember the timing, but things like early information about like the human genome project and mapping DNA. And I think at the time IBM was even doing some work trying to understand DNA sequencing and sequencing machines. And he would talk to us about the size of the IBM computers and how, you know, they used to fill a room bigger than the room I'm in now. And then they just got smaller. And then in his lifetime, he saw them, you know, fit to 
the size of a, a laptop, bigger than I'm using today. But it was a, a completely amazing the way that it transformed over time. So I think he, that's what I guess I'm thinking back is to DNA sequencing machines and just the whole concept. I understand. Your brother and sister, what birth order, if you don't mind me asking? Um, I'm the oldest, and then my sister's two years younger, and he was always feeding her information about accounting and finance. Turns out she's a second grade teacher and the best teacher on the planet, so she's terrific. And then my brother, he was, he was always interested in computer games, so my dad would give him information, anything related to computers, and he is a director at Bluescape right now. It's a cutting-edge company, and he leads the operations team, and he's very successful. So what did your mother think when at 10 years old, you're taking classes in, in science? Was she excited about it? We also got to dissect frogs. They introduced us to all kinds of things. But, the, you know, some of the, my favorite memories were dissecting and trying, you know, just learning and realizing that, you know, you see a frog, but there's like so much more going on in there. And one time I very proudly took home a Ziploc baggie and it had, I think it was the corneas from the eyes of the frogs and my friend and I took it out on the kitchen table and said mom look at this and I think I put it in her hands she said what is it and then I told her and she threw her hands up in the air and said oh my gosh what have you done and the frog eye lenses like we never found them they just got thrown in the kitchen she actually was awesome she did not get mad but boy was she surprised she was very supportive she thought it was just like a, a really great opportunity my brother and sister had gone to the, the private Catholic school in Morgan Hill, but the what year we moved there, there was not room for a new fifth grader. And so I went to the public school, which is how I ended up in the science program. So it's just kind of interesting how things just really, you know, work out. You know, what seems like maybe I didn't get that opportunity, I got exposed to a different opportunity. And actually, I think that's something I really believe in in life is just keep your eyes open and something new is going to show up. It, it, it works out. Well, when you weren't dissecting frog eyes, what did you do for fun? I rode my bike a lot. That yeah. was my big thing. Um, my dad would take us skiing a few times a year. We'd get up at, you know, 4.35 in the morning and we'd drive to the mountains. We'd ski all day and then drive home that night. But those are good memories. We had a swimming pool. So my mom was always great about having us um, have friends over and we would have lots of inner tubes and be playing in the pool. But mostly I just rode my bike all over the place all the time. I was just exploring and it was kind of cool in Morgan Hill. There were still fields with cows and horses and lots of trees to climb and ditches to ride our bikes through. And I had a really good time that way. Sounds like a fun childhood. What was the transition like to Cal Poly when you left home and you're off to school? I thought it was really great in that it was far enough away from home, but not too far. And I loved that the professors were sort of young and cool. And they used to tell us to call us by their, them by their first name. My science teacher, I called him John. And, you know, I don't know, it was just, it was interesting. It made me feel very adult being on campus. The weather down in San Luis Obispo was perfect year round. And that was amazing. I also felt better. There used to be, you know, I think a fair amount of smog in the Bay Area. This was like, I graduated high school in 1983. And it was before they started improving emission control and all this kind of thing. And I, I just remember the sky look, didn't look as good. And I went down to San Luis Obispo and it, the skies were so clear. We're very close to the ocean. And I no longer got headaches. And I think that that was the reason. And, and that felt fabulous, actually. 
Yeah, you said something earlier that I think is really interesting. You're a freshman in college and you got really excited about organic chemistry. Actually, I was a little older. So I took inorganic chemistry my freshman year and then organic chemistry my sophomore year. And then it was going to be biochemistry my junior year. I see. What was it about organic chemistry that was really exciting? It was this professor. He taught it. He's fabulous, Leland Endress. And, you know, some people are just natural teachers. And he did it in a way that I felt like, um, like I was almost playing games, like where you could think in your head about how molecules were coming together and it was 3D and it felt like a puzzle, like the way he would teach class. And he just really brought it down. I found inorganic chemistry to be more complicated and difficult, but then I found organic chemistry to be like playing puzzles in your head and games. And it seemed really valuable. And I really liked the labs as well. So he was a great professor. It's amazing the influence a great teacher can have on a subject and really bring it to life. So when you got to the lab at Collagen, you didn't have Professor Leland there. What about actually doing this great work in the lab didn't seem to fit for you? There were, you know, some terrific scientists. I would say when I would go outside the lab and I interacted with other people, I just felt greater connections. We were very close to the manufacturing area. So I met a couple of people, Phil Palin and Tom Smestad, that I still talk to and work with today, kept in touch with them. And it's been a long time and they're just great people. And then I ended up later meeting Cindy D'Amicus in regulatory affairs. And it was an amazing company with really talented people. There were just people that I felt, you know, maybe it's partly we didn't have cell phones and people weren't distracted that way. So there was a lot of interacting with people. It was a good place. Howard Pilevsky was the president of Collagen Corporation, and he had this way of really believing in people. He had very high standards, and our quarterly reviews were always very tough, but he would never limit opportunities. And sometimes I would just shake my head and I'd be surprised at the things that he and his team allowed and encouraged people to to do outside immediate responsibilities. I just found that very motivating. Like I worked on a product, it was a partnership with Zimmer, besides working on the regulatory document, when it came time to work out the finance deal, I got to go to that meeting and participate. It was only a group of three or four people, and I was one of them with no finance background, but he felt like I had value in that I had spent you know, more of a year of my life getting that PMA approved. I, I'm just very thankful that Howard Pilevsky allowed so many opportunities and truly let it know when he believed in people and he encouraged you. I feed off positive reinforcement and I got that in spades from him. Yeah, it seems like a theme is it's a lot to do with the people and getting out of the lab. I have friends that they would call themselves introverted and they're very comfortable in quiet and solitude and thinking. And then there are others that feed off the energy of people and the interaction not suggesting that that's your situation. Oh, it definitely is. is that, okay. I, I love to meet people. Um, that's actually something I love about consulting. While I love a great company and working with that group of people, um, when you're consulting, you keep meeting new people. And that part gives me a lot of energy. It's fun. And you just sort of add that person into your, I'd say Rolodex, but that dates me. <laughs> you, then you know one more person. And some people collect giraffes or frogs. I collect friends. That's great. I think we should all collect more friends. That's a good wisdom for the day. 
Well, so how long into your career were you involved in this PMA? I mean, for people that don't know, a PMA, not everyone gets to do one necessarily even in their career. And so how many years into yours were you involved in that one? Well, it was at College Incorporation. I was probably five or six years into my first job, and it was a group effort. So I was a very key individual in it, but not alone. A PMA is a, a big job. And like I said, we were doing that one with Zimmer. And mostly the work was on College Incorporation side, but we would come together and have meetings. I believe it was quarterly that we would get together and take turns, whether it was in Warsaw, Indiana, or Palo Alto, California. And and it was at least nine months working on that PMA. I don't remember exactly. I've actually written three PMAs and they've each gotten approved. So that was pretty fabulous. <laughs> Adding a thousand. So for the audience, what's great about having you on the show is regulatory for healthcare entrepreneurs, whether it's in digital health, biotech, pharma, medical device. Regulatory is a complicated topic. And for some people, it's intimidating. So you mentioned... PMA, if you wouldn't mind, just give us at a higher level, what is the FDA's purpose? What are they there to do? And when you have a product of any kind, how do you determine the regulatory pathway? And what are some of the different pathways you've experienced with? Okay, sure. So the Food and Drug Administration, they regulate everything from food, cosmetics, medicines, and medical devices. So all of my experiences in medical devices, and within medical devices, they break it apart into three different classifications, class one, two, and three, with one being the lowest class that does not usually need a pre-approval or clearance from the FDA. I say not usually because there are some exceptions. I even had one of those. Class three being the highest risk devices, and those are the ones that need pre-market approval. Class three is the highest risk devices, and those are approved by the FDA under PMA. And that's where you have to submit safety and effectiveness information and they approve the device. So class twos are in the middle. They're the middle level of risk and they're generally approved under a 510K, which is, which is where you show that you're substantially equivalent to a device that's already been on the market either before May 28th, 1976, which is when the regulation went into effect or you're equivalent to a device that was found substantially equivalent. And I've worked in all of those areas, as well as IDEs, which is an investigational device exemption. And that's when you get approval to test a medical device that is not yet approved. And so you're using an unapproved device on Americans. And so the FDA approves an IDE. And with an IDE clinical trial, which of the regulatory paths does that usually support? Usually that would be for a PMA. And is there anything in between? Well, there's a de novo application and a de novo would be, usually there would be an IDE and some clinical data and it's like a 510K. It's more like a, a middle level in terms of risk, but it's the situation where there's not a clear predicate. And so there's not a device that you can say you're substantially equivalent to. So instead you collect data and then you file a de novo application. Okay, well, thanks for that background. When I was getting started, the FDA, I didn't quite have context for what their role was. And as I've learned more about it, they have this balance they're trying to strike where they want to promote innovation and then protect safety. And sometimes, like other regulators, different federal regulators, how they balance their mission can be influenced ultimately by people. What I always like to think when I'm you know, working on a regulatory problem is the FDA has an important job. There are partners in industry. 
And we really all want the same thing, which is we want to bring breakthrough therapies to market and also ensure that the population is safe. How would you describe in 2020 the regulatory environment in terms of promoting innovation and protecting safety compared to other times in your career? Well, I think that it depends. It really does depend on which group you're working with. And perhaps it shouldn't be this way. But if you're working with orthopedics, it could be different than if you're working with dental, perhaps. And I can only speak from my experience. But where I am right now, it seems that the FDA is trying to be creative. With COVID, they've got to be aware, just as human beings in the United States, how devastating this is to companies and jobs and our economy. And so they are being creative. They are issuing guidances and updates and information constantly on how we can handle the COVID situation. We get these daily updates that show the new and changed regulations. And there's been a lot. So there's a lot of work happening. And I think they understand the need. They, of course, don't want to let a patient be harmed. And they are moving forward and adjusting constantly. In the beginning, they were going forward with a lot of EUAs, emergency use authorizations. I worked on one related to a COVID test kit, and I think they've slowed that down a little bit because maybe they've realized they went a little too fast and due just to the tremendous urgency and what we saw happening in New York with so many patients dying. I think that they're really doing their best. And I have to say, I I see them working very hard. We get emails at you know, East Coast time, you know, where it's nine o'clock for them and, you know, nine o'clock on a Friday night and they've, you know, sent an email and we're thrilled to hear from them. But we also say like, wow, they just sent that email kind of late in the evening. And so I feel very appreciative for how hard they're working. I feel the same way, Roxanne. I know in my experience at Providence, really over the last few years, the FDA, I've found to be great partners and they do have a difficult job. I've had the same experience and and seeing them working as much as they have. And so my advice would be to other people building healthcare solutions is it's really important to view the Food and Drug Administration as your partner. And because this partnership between industry and our regulator, it's not just important to be successful as a business and to get your product to market. It's also important to promote safety overall. I think right now, the balance that they've struck is really impressive. And I I applaud all the new guidance documents that they're putting out. And they're being very innovative in how they look at things like digital health and digital therapeutics. So it's a good time, I guess what I would say. I would say, number one, shout out to the FDA. Thank you. We appreciate it. It does, however, add complexity and really underscores the need of real regulatory expertise. Your your background, you've done it all in all these different companies. And SI Bone, you know, for those that don't know, is one of the most successful spinal implant businesses in the last five to 10 years to go from zero to, I don't know, 40, 50 million dollars at the time of the IPO and in annual sales, and they just continue to grow. Your experience almost seven years working as the vice president of regulatory affairs. How do you like being the key executive for the regulatory role at a single company versus the breadth of your practice at Arjubois Consulting now? Because I notice that the best regulatory experts, they tend to work sometimes out of a company, but they go back to consulting. And I, I don't know, I have this idea that it's because there's just a dearth of expertise And there's so much unmet need from builders that we need regulatory expertise. So maybe you could talk to us about that a little bit. What is that difference like for you? 
Well, I'm definitely more of a small company kind of person. You know, when I first joined SIBone, it was, you know, in a, a smaller part of a building and everybody was interacting with each other. And there were a lot of interesting regulatory projects to work on. And there were some things that were really big reaches, like actually getting a claim approved to reduce pain. So, you know, there were some really fabulous things that I got to work on. Then over time, as a company grows and starts, you know, getting towards an IPO, it becomes a little bit more maintenance and I'm less of a company maintenance kind of person. I really like to build things. I've been with lots of startups where they take you to an empty building and there's no walls. It's just like the outer walls of the building. And you have to think like, okay, which corner should we put the science group in or quality or regulatory? And you literally see it go from the ground up. I think I'm more in the the building phase and thinking of the strategies. And I think it's very important to bring you know, regulatory in early. I remember there was this one startup I worked at and they had, you know, sort of saved money by not bringing regulatory in. And they had very, very smart scientists doing the regulatory work, except for that he didn't have regulatory experience. And so all the documentation was done in a manner that, let's say the chronic condition that was being treated was different than the acute population. And it just dug this hole that was really hard because when it when I was eventually brought in and we wanted to do an IDE, the FDA really insisted that we actually had to have two IDEs and two separate patient populations to test the product in the acute group and then the chronic group separately because so much work had been done where they were completely differentiated. And so we couldn't backpedal what we tried, but it didn't work. So they ended up having to do two complete randomized trials. So I guess I I just really like being in the early phases with a startup. And I think that the the sooner a company brings in the regulatory person, the better. And it doesn't mean they have to stay in with lots of hours and expense, but you can, regulatory person can kind of come in and out of projects as needed. That's a great insight. And I think something that would be a valuable takeaway for the audience, because regulatory strategy having that expertise at the very beginning, even if it's just a few hours here and there to bounce off what you think is the right approach, you can save yourself a lot of time and energy. And in this case, you know, going down a path that was very expensive and time consuming to correct. It reminds me of a previous episode where we were talking with an attorney, Evan Ng. And the takeaway for me is that as a regulatory expert, being knowledgeable on the guidance documents and really knowing all the guidance and exactly how the procedure of getting clearances and approvals works, that's key. And there's not a lot of people that do that. The next level, which, and I think it's, there's a parallel to practicing law is being able to apply a great knowledge base of the laws or the guidance, and then have the creativity to take a company who does not quite have a regulatory strategy yet, or maybe they're aware of some obstacles, and then be able to connect the dots and come up with a efficient, safe, and effective regulatory strategy. And I have to give you a lot of credit. That's something you do as well as anybody I know. And there's probably only a handful full of people in the country that are at your level. And when you add to the fact that you're so much fun to work with and so personable, it's a great combination. So thank you for those kind words. That was very generous and nice of you. (laughs) It's interesting for me though, because in my experience, when you're 
recruiting regulatory expertise, you're basically trying to ask the person, will you please work with me? <laughs> because there's just so few people that can do what you do. For people that are listening, how much capacity do you have for new clients? Would you be willing to talk to new clients? And if so, what's the best way to reach you? Sure. I am always happy to talk to people about new projects, but you know, definitely time is finite, so I can't take on everything. So they can reach me at my phone number, which is 408-828-5019 or rdubois-consulting at gmail.com. I'm always happy to talk to people, even if it's a preliminary conversation where we say, you know, I, I don't really need to hire you now, but I'd just like to meet you. And maybe down the road, we might want to, you know, be working together or work on a, a regulatory project. But I, I, like I said, I always like meeting new people. So I'm happy to take a phone call. And is it okay if I include your contact info in the show notes? Oh, for sure. All right. Yes. Great. Well, before we transition to the next section, what would your advice be for people interested in the regulatory affairs profession and learning this expertise, what's a great way to get started and what advice would you share? Um, I, I would suggest that they reach out and talk to people. Um, that's something, you know, I have nieces um, and a nephew that, you know, are, uh, have recently gone through college and I've over the years talked to some of their friends in the science programs and people um, that I meet, maybe friends of mine's children I'm actually going to be talking with somebody this coming week. And I sort of always um, talk up not just regulatory affairs, but the medical device industry as a whole. Um, I think we do really fabulous work and change lives. And so, of course, I always kind of push that idea. Um, it's been a, a great um, experience for me. And um, I guess my, my advice would be, you know, reach out and talk to people. Um, you know, as like I said, I'm going to be talking to Sarah when day this coming week and um, and to trust your gut because you know we know ourselves best your dad can think you should do whatever you know my dad thought my sister would be great in accounting but that wasn't her thing so you have to trust your gut and go with what's comfortable and really where your interests lie well what I love about that Roxanne is I think back to the way you described sophomore year organic chemistry you're interacting with great people the science is coming to life. There's this puzzle piece, problem solving thing that's really interesting and exciting. Then fast forward to seeing an actual patient and recognizing how much value you can deliver for the patient by solving these puzzles and interacting with companies. It's a great sales pitch for regulatory affairs. And I think I'm gonna suggest my kids take a hard look at it. <laughs> call me. Something that I think that's interesting about regulatory affairs is that it's a regulated area. Um, of course, everything is 21 CFR, dot, dot, dot. You know, there's, there's a regulation we have to follow. But what I personally love about it is we can still be creative. You know, you can, I, I think of my job as problem solving. And you, you can um, have a whole spectrum of answers. You know, there can be a flat, no, you can't do that. To, to starting to you know, step back, and I like to think about if I was an FDA inspector and I was here evaluating the work you've done, what would I be okay with? And you know, a lot of times there's different approaches that you can take and to just try and be creative. And what works for the FDA? What is doing the right thing and documenting it and making sure that there's you know, patient safety is, and, and risks are being considered? But also, we don't have to be rigid. I mean, if you're um, maybe you need to write a memo to file explaining why you've adjusted based on what the strict reading of the SOP is, you know, that maybe there's another approach. So 
I guess um, that's just a final comment that even though it's a regulated industry, it's an area where I actually find myself enjoying being creative. Yeah, I'm glad you shared that. As you mentioned, the FDA is constantly putting out these guidance documents and they're comprehensive and very well written. There's also a need of interpreting them for specific situations and the guidance document can't cover everything. And so one of the things that you know, you've taught me is you need to know the guidance documents, but ultimately the agency and their managers and scientists are doing their best to interpret these very clear guidance documents for unique and novel situations. And that's where I've seen the creativity be incredibly valuable. And the final thing is ultimately it's people. It really goes back to building relationships and the Rolodex is that you need to understand the motivation of the people on the other side and realizing that they have an important job to do. It's not easy. And I've seen you connect with people at the agency and the time you take to get to know what they're trying to do. And I've seen the trust that that builds. And I think that's what a partnership between industry and our regulators is all about. Absolutely. Yeah. Now there's some FDA people that, um, you know, they've really uh, reached out and made themselves available and you have to take that opportunity. And you know, it, it, it might feel safer to just stay behind, you know, email or, you know, keeping this distance. But, um, you know, the more you get to know them and, you know, try and picture yourself in their shoes, you know, what would I, what submission would I want to get if, you know, if I was in Washington, D.C.? Because they're just a person exactly like me. I could live there. I could have that job. But instead, I have my job. But I can imagine, um, and that's what I like to do is, you know, what would help me um, fill in the blanks, feel comfortable, understand, <clears throat> excuse me, understand the information um, if I was working for the FDA. And, you know, some of these are really great people. And I think, you know, they, they've given me feedback over the years that, you know, they, they really appreciate that submissions are organized well and, you know, that, that we've really written it in a way that tries to help them, you know, understand what's important. All right, so the last part of the interview, we're gonna to go to the vault. Are you ready? <laughs> okay, I'm ready. All right, good. So start off, in the last year, is there a book, movie, TV series, blog, podcast, song, any type of artwork that you experienced that really influenced you and has changed your perspective on life or business? Yeah, I've read lots of books, but I, the one I would like to mention is um, The Unwinding of a Miracle. It's by Julie Yip Williams, and it's, it's an incredible story. It's a true story. And uh, this woman was born um, in Vietnam and blind, and her grandmother actually wanted to have her euthanized um, because it seemed like uh, the grandmother's position was it would be a terrible way to live, and it's going to be a huge burden on the family. Somehow, this woman manages to get to the United States, to get to UCLA, where she got some treatment and, you know, some restoration of her vision. She gets to Harvard. She gets a degree in law. She gets married. She has children. It's just like the most remarkable story. And then, boom, she gets uh, metastatic colon cancer, terminal. And the book is really about her. Uh, it's, it's kind of a small part in the beginning, like, you know, how did she get here? But what the book is about is her dealing with that. And at the same time, I, I had a very good friend, Kim, who was going through the exact same thing. And um, so that had happened a couple of years earlier. But the book helped me understand what Kim went through in a way that um, I don't think all the, you know, the lunches in the world, um, you know, like, uh, weren't going to 
helped me understand the way the book did. But the takeaway message and the reason it's important is just that, you know, we're here today, enjoy today, have fun with what you're doing, embrace life, be good to people, be kind. That's powerful. So next question, other than your parents, who is someone who saw your potential early, took an interest in your development, and has had an important influence on your career? So at College Incorporation, there was the VP of R&D was Frank Delestro, and he was a PhD immunologist and a really fabulous um, executive and friend. And I remember being in a conference room, and there were a bunch of PhDs and a couple of MDs. And I remember maybe uh, just feeling like my confidence might have been a little bit questioned. <laughs> and it was within a day or two, he asked me to his office, and I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> like, what's going on? And I went in, and he just gave me this, um, this sort of pep talk and said, you know, Roxanne, I, I really see something in you. And he said, I want you to have this article, and it was about emotional intelligence. And he said, you have something that these PhDs and MDs don't have. And it was just kind of a weird conversation because it literally felt like he read my mind. It was really strange. Um, but his vote of confidence um, back when I was in my 20s was really helpful. And I've just kept in touch with him every year ever since then. And he's just a, a terrific person. And I, I really always appreciated knowing him. All right. Next question. In your professional life, on a day-to-day -day basis, what is an online tool that you use every day and you can't imagine working without? Well, it's really simple, but that would just be the telephone. Of course, Zoom is terrific. I love to pick up the phone and talk to people and just connect. Lots of people that I've kept in touch with that either they call me or I call them just to bounce an idea off them. So definitely the telephone. It's amazing. People don't use the phone as much as they used to. It's all text and email and messaging. And Right. And then you can accomplish so much more. I mean, you can put 100 texts into like a six minute phone call. Yeah, the phone has endured the Rolodex, not so much. Right. <laughs> All right, last question. In your role at R. Dubois Consulting LLC, what is the biggest unmet need in your business that you hope somebody builds something to address? As we've talked about a couple of times, the FDA puts out a lot of guidance documents and they come out in these daily emails and you know, I, I read them and I stay on top of it, but every once in a while you worry about missing an email, thereby, you know, some new rule or guidance document. So in companies, there's programs to keep track of training. And if you don't do your training, you keep getting an email that says, you know, you haven't fulfilled your training obligation. And so I kind of wish there was a way that there was like an account that said, you know, here's all of FDA's new and changed regulations and guidance documents. And they kept, I would like it to keep coming up in my email every day until I either checked off that it doesn't apply to me or I've read it so that I don't miss anything. All right, folks, well, you heard it here, Unwinding of a Miracle by Julie Yip Williams, Frank Delustro, who is the VP of R&D at Collagen Corporation. Roxanne's most important tool on a day-to-day -day basis is the phone. And if there was one tool that she would like to see built, it would be some productivity system to help her as a regulatory expert manage all of her FDA trainings and guidance documents. Well, Roxanne, I really appreciated the time. Thanks so much for being on Unmet Need. Thanks, Jeff.